Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you and study your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we go through this chapter and show us what you would want us to see from this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, for 2 Samuel chapter 8. We're continuing with uh, David establishing his kingdom. Uh, if you remember last time we studied, uh, Nathan, David told Nathan he wanted to build a temple. Nathan originally told him, yes, go ahead. You know, it sounds like a good idea. Then on his way back home, God told him, Nathan, go back and tell him that, no, you were wrong. God didn't, didn't want that you're not going to build this house. And then we look at this chapter 8, verse 1. And after this, it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagagmah out of the hand of the Philistines, and he smote Moab and measured them in, with a line, casting them down to the ground, even with two lines measured he to put to death, and with one full line to keep alive. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. David smote had Imnez, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went down to recover his border at the river of Euphrates. And David took from him the th a thousand chariots and seven thousand horsemen, twenty thousand footmen, and David hewed the chariot horses, but reserved of them a hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to succor Hadizah, king of Zobah, David slew the Syrians, 22,000 men. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants of David and brought gifts. And the Lord preserved David and whithersoever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadezer and brought them to Jerusalem and from Beta and from Behotha, cities of Hadezer, king of David, king David took exceeding much brass. All right. So in this chapter, we're seeing God give David victory. Everywhere he's going, he's victorious. And, the, and this is the story that David had. He, was, he went out, he conquered the land of Israel. And he went about and pretty much in David's day, he made Israel the size that it's supposed to be. He uh, conquered all the way up to the Euphrates, all the way to the Mediterranean. He conquered the eastern side of the Sea of, uh, sea of Galilee and the Jordan River and down to the wilderness of, of Sin. And so when David got done, he had all the territory God said was theirs. And they have never had, after Solomon died, they have never had all of their territory ever since. And uh, have lost it over the years and today just have a very small sliver of what belongs to them. And God will give them back their land. So it says, after this, it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them and took Methekahimah, and that's a, that's a it's literally the mother city of the Philistines, <laughs> out of the hand of the Philistines. And he smote Moab and measured them a line, casting them down on the ground, even with two lines measured he and put to death. And with one full line he kept to death alive, so that the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. So David subdued the Philistines, took their, some of their major cities, and made them servants to him. 
Then he went out to the Moabites and, and defeated them. And this is something, I don't know why they put it in here, but it's quite interesting. David made two lines of the people, killed one line, and, and left the other ones alive. I don't know what point he was trying to make with them. Probably a punishment to say that you have been so evil. But he ends up killing half, brutally killing half the people, not, not in battle, but just lining them up. One on one side, one on the other, one on one side, one on the other, and then went down one line and killed them all. And it probably was a punishment. I didn't go back to see if there was another spot in, in uh, Chronicles or, uh, or Kings to tell me why he did it. Uh, I just looked at that and I'm going, what brutality. And this was, this was something that was brutal. It was one thing to kill somebody in battle, but this is just an execution. Did God tell him to? It's possible that God told him to because of how bad and sinful they were. But usually God would say kill all of them, not kill half of them. So David went down the line and just killed half of the Moabites and then, then made them his servants. It may be that he was making a point, don't rebel against me or the rest of you will die. Uh, <laughs> say what's going to lie ahead if you, dis if you, if you rebel. So he started on these first two verses, he conquers the Philistines. And remember, the Philistines have been trouble for Israel all the way back through the judges. For 400 years, they've been trouble for Israel. Saul fought the Philistines every time he turned around. David subdues the Philistines, then he goes after the Moabites. And he's being given victory. And this is something that is interesting to me because it's very interesting to me that when we follow God and we've made it through a lot of our temptations, there comes a point where we run into a series of victories a lot of times, where everything seems to go right. And David right now is going in through a whole series of victories. One right after the other, he's being victorious. Now he's soon to be facing problems because of his sins, but right now he's walking with God and he's seeing victories. In verse 3 it says, David also smote Hadah as uh, the son of Abath, king of Zabar, as he went to recover his border at the river Euphrates. Now, I have a question on this. Is, as he went to recover, I don't know whether it's talking about David or if it's talking about King Hadad is there. I looked it up at a couple of commentaries, and they all said nobody knows, uh, which is what I expected. <laughs> I think because this is a chapter about David's victories, that it was probably David, going, that he is probably David going out to get the territory that was given, given to the Israelites and going after the territory that belonged to them. I will not stand tight on that. I will not make a strong stand, uh, place on that uh, statement. But this is God giving victory to David. So I have a feeling that it really is David who is the he in this particular case. Uh, if somebody wants to make a case for the other king, I'm not going to argue it because there's nothing there to really help us understand who it is. And that did belong to the children of Israel by God's Abraham. Everywhere your foot is touched is yours. And he started by crossing the Euphrates up around Haran, which is just above Syria. And that, so that belongs to Israel. Uh, all of that land belongs to Israel, contrary to the rest of the world who wants Israel to not have their land. All that land belongs to Israel. And very important that we understand that it belongs to, belongs to them. All the way up to the Euphrates belongs to them. All the way out to the Mediterranean belongs to them. And down all the way to just above 
Egypt belongs to Israel and will belong to Israel during the Millennial Kingdom. And David, this is why I believe David was going to get the land that he says, this is our land, I'm going to go conquer it. Will I take a hard, fast stance on that? No. <laughs> but the chapter's context is victories of David. So I lean, I lean toward the idea that it was David going off to have the victory. If somebody wants to make the argument the other way, I'm not going to fight too hard because I can't be sure other than the context. Uh, verse 4 says, And David took from him a thousand chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 footmen. That's quite an army that David defeated. And as far as we know, David did not have chariots at this point in time. God told him not to depend on chariots, not to depend on horses, to depend on him, depend on him and, and not to go after the world's way of power. And you've got to remember, when we read chariots, we don't think much of it, but chariots in that day and age were the equivalent of tanks in World War I and World War II. They were something that people were afraid of. They came charging down on you. There'd be eight, uh, four to eight horses pulling a big chariot. The chariots usually had big uh, sharp sword type appendages that they would ride through and people would get trampled if they stood in the way. They'd get cut if they stood anywhere near it. Uh, these were vicious weapons and David conquers a thousand of them. That's quite an accomplishment. And he conquers 700 cavalry units and 20,000 foot soldiers. He conquered quite an army. And we don't know how big his army was, you know, Probably it could have been in the hundreds of thousands of David and mobilized his entire nation over it. But he conquers all of this. And then it says he hewed the chariot horses, which means he hamstrung them. He cut their hamstrings so they could not pull and carry any weight any again. He was never going to let them be chariot horses. It does say, however, that he kept, he kept 100 chariots for himself. So that he kept some of them, so which means... 9,000, uh, 900 chariot horses were hamstrung, uh, cut, cut their hamstrings. They probably could walk, but they weren't going to run. They weren't going to run. They weren't going to pull anything anymore. And he probably did the same thing with the horsemen for the, for the cavalry. Again, we read these things and we think, David, how brutal are you? And he was pretty brutal about this, but he was also making sure that nobody else ever used those horses as chariot horses. And because God had told him, he knew the scriptures, he knew that God had told him, don't go to Egypt, don't get horses, don't depend on horses. So by killing 900, you know, or disabling 900 of the teams of horses, which if there were only four horses per chariot, that's 3,600 horses that he, that he hamstrung, up to 7,200 horses, plus probably the 700. So up to as many as 8,000 horses he hamstrung. Why? Because he wasn't going to fall into the idea of trusting in the world's way of doing things. If he had kept all those horses, he understood that if he kept all those horses, all those chariots, that he might be tempted to trust, trust in them. Not just use them, but to trust in them. I can go to battle because I've got a thousand, I've got a thousand chariots. Nobody can stand up against me. Yeah. Real, not realizing that God had already given him the, you know, the thousand, thousand chariots. So he destroys, basically he destroys the horses, you know, because they're not worth a whole lot with their being hamstrung. 
And then when the Syrians in verse 5 of Damascus came to succor, Hadezer, the king of Zeb, David slew of the Assyrian 22,000 men. So they came to help. Their ally from Syria, Zobar, which is a western province of Syria, he's, he's suffering, so the Assyrians send an army and David kills 22,000 of their men. Uh, David is victorious. Everywhere he turns, he's having victories. And it says, David put garrison, garrison in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants of David and brought gifts. Now, I want you to understand, I didn't mention this earlier, but when this says brought gifts, this is tribute. This isn't gift. This is taxes. All right? It's not like, oh, David, we're so happy to be your, be your servants. It's no, David said, you're going to pay me, pay me taxes, and this is how much you're going to pay. I, I let you live. Now you're going to give me usually exorbitant amounts of money to stay alive. Uh, and so don't, when you read these gifts, don't think, oh, wow, they were so happy to be David's servants. They, they, they gladly brought in gifts. No, they're bringing tribute, <laughs> taxes to David, uh, not, not just gifts. And it says in the end of verse 6, and the Lord preserved or saved David whether, wherever he went. God gave him victory. David is being blessed. And David has been blessed right from the very beginning. Remember, he comes out, he comes out to fight Goliath and says, you know, God, you know, he has insulted God. I'm going to fight for God's honor, and God will deliver him. And sure enough, God delivered Goliath. He struck him down with one stone. He goes out to fight, and he wins. And he's always been that way. When he fought out, when he was fighting uh, the general for Saul, he'd come back victorious. There's no place in here that ever speaks of David going into battle and losing. David was a man who definitely enjoyed life when he was up. When he was down, he was miserable. Not quite as bad as Saul was <laughs> trying to curse God and cause problems, but David had a real problem with, with uh, being depressed at times. But not now. <laughs> Everywhere he's going, he's winning. He puts a garrison of troops in Syria, in Damascus in Syria, and they become his servants. David took the shields of gold that were with the servants of Hadizar and brought them to Jerusalem. He used them for decoration and for arming his imperial guard inside Jerusalem. On ceremonies, they would, they would get to take out the gold shields because gold would not make a great war, war shield. It's too soft a metal. Uh, it was a decorative, decorative shield. And so he took it from them and he's going to put it into Jerusalem. And from Bethah, to Berathah, cities of Hedezar, King David exceeded, took exceedingly much brass. So he took a lot of brass. Betah is one of the capital cities of Zobar, which is the western part of Syria. And Betharah is near Haram, Hamath of Syria, which is way up north, closer to the Euphrates River. Uh, so David was ex taking great tolls of brass from them. Apparently, those were cities that were known for their brass productions. Verse 9, when Tori, king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the host of Hadadezer, then Tori sent Jeron, Jeron, his son, to King David to salute him and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and smitten him. For Hadadezer had wars with Tori, and 
Joram brought with him vessels of silver and all the ves and vessels of gold and vessels of brass, which also King David did dedicate unto the Lord, which with the silver and gold that he had dedicated in all the nations which he had subdued, of Syria and of Moab and of the children of Ammon and of Philistines and of, a a and of Amalekite and of the spoil of Hedizar, son of Reboth, king of Zohar, Zobah, and king and David got him a name when he returned from smiting the Syrians in the valley of salt being being 18,000 men alright so you have this king up at Hamath and remember I said Berothah is close to Hamath it's real it's a city in, a, in Syria but it's close to this king's city this king has watched David beat his neighbors who he's had problems beating. They've been at war at for several years, and David handily beats his, beats his opponent, beats the Syrians that come and try to help him. He has probably heard about David defeating the Philistines and the, Ammonite, uh, the uh, Amorites and, and the Edomites and all these other people that were named here, and decides the better part of valor is to surrender. Say, David, I, uh, you can, I will give you whatever you want. Uh, I, I want peace. Because David handily beat his enemy that he has not been able to beat. So in his mind, David is going to take him next. So he sends his son, and his son comes against him with, and brings a bunch of uh, boxes, vessels here are boxes, boxes of silver, boxes of gold, and boxes of brass. He's coming with a huge uh, bribe. <laughs> you might want to call it a gift, but it's basically a bribe. David, all of this is yours if you just leave us alone. And the one thing they know about David, David is a man of honor. If he accepts this bribe, he's not going to attack them. So they know that this is going to be their salvation if they do this. And it's kind of interesting. It doesn't really say what was said, how it was said, but David accepts it. And I think it's so interesting. And when David did, which David took these things in verse 11, which also King David did dedicate to the Lord with the silver and gold that he had dedicated of all the nations which he has subdued. David is not getting rich from all of these battles. He's taken all the share that belongs to him and putting it to the temple. The temple hasn't been built yet, but when he hands over the reins to Solomon, he gives Solomon a huge amount of money in the form of brass and silver and gold to build the temple. And David probably has taken the lion's share of these victories and saying everything's going to God. And because the king is dedicating his, his uh, spoil to the, to the temple, I would imagine that most of the leaders <laughs> may not gave all of their spoil, but they probably gave a pretty good sum to add to the treasury in the temp for the temple. Because it doesn't look good if you don't give it when the king's giving it. Because the, the king could go back and say... Uh, Hey, Mr. Duke, uh, how much did you contribute to the, to the treasury out of all, uh, for the temple out of all of this? And you better not say none when David's giving everything. And this is something that's really interesting. David is not enriching himself from all of these battles. He is not seeming to enrich himself from all the activities he's going on. He's built a palace. He has a home. He has everything he wants. He has plenty of food. He has the the cattle that, that Saul had, he has all the king's cattle, 
But all the money he's bringing in from these battles that belong to him to make him richer, he's given to the, to the priest. Now, and this really goes to show us, you know, when God asks for us to give to him, do we do it stingily or do we do it joyfully? And uh, Saul, uh, Saul, yeah, Paul wrote that God loves a cheerful giver. God says that we're to give to him, and he really does want the tithe. The tithe is a starting. I believe that God still wants the tithe, and that's the minimum that we should be giving him. And God wants people to be cheerful about it. He goes, if you can't be cheerful about it, don't even give the tithe. But if you can be cheerful about it, give above the tithe. I really believe rewards start after the tithe. I believe the tithe is what we give to give God the minimum of what he expects. And anything above that is our offerings that God says, okay, now I, now I see that you love me. I, you're caring for me. Now let me, bless, let me bless you because you're giving above the tithe. Uh, I can't prove that, but it just, I really do. God says, God demands the tithe, so I believe the offerings are what we ask, what we give. Uh, Jesus said, you know, looked at the widow, widow who gave the two mites and said, she's given all. She's reserved nothing. She has nothing to buy food with or, or soap or anything else. She gave everything. And I think I've said this before. I'm looking forward to giving, going to heaven because I want to seek out the widow. I really want to know what was the rest of the story because I am absolutely sure she didn't go home and die. Not when Jesus noticed what she did and said, she's given all. And we know that when you give all to God, you get a blessing in return. I really would like to know the rest of her story. What exactly happened to her that night? Did she find a basket of food at home? You know, did, did family or friends come and give her, give her some gift? You know, I am really interested in what happened to her. Uh, and it's very intriguing that God didn't tell us. <laughs> he just said, she's given all. And she'll be remembered for all of eternity, and she is being remembered for all of eternity. It's really easy to seek God when we have nothing. And I've seen more people fall when they have lots of stuff than I've seen fall when they have nothing because when they have nothing they know they need God and they're in prayer a lot more and sometimes it's very hard to go to God when you don't really think you need him because God I've got it I've got my job my bills are being paid what do I need you for and God can very quickly say well let me show you how you need me let me take your job away let me take whatever it is you think you have away from you a lot of people when they get wealthy follow God and all of a sudden forget God they may not totally leave the charge, but, you know, and I understand on one side, you know, when you're tithing off of a $100 check, it's only $10. What can you buy with $10? You're tithing off of a, a $2,000 check. That's a $200 offering. And it's like, what can I buy with $200? I can buy food. I can pay my electric. I can, you know, pay my insurance. There's lots of things you can do with $200. So I actually understand why it's harder for a rich person to tithe because they're looking at where could this money have gone? And if you're really rich and you're tithing off of $10,000, it's like your tithe is $1,000, and it's like, whoa, you know, I can do a lot with $1,000. Uh, so I understand on one side why it's hard for people to continue tithing when they're doing well. The sad thing is, though, a lot of times they just forget God altogether. They have just so many toys, and they've got to play with their toys, and God gets squeezed out of their life because they're busy playing with the toys that God has blessed them with. And that's a very dangerous place to be. Sometimes wealth is a bad place for a Christian because we can get really wrapped up in it and trying to keep it. You know, sometimes people get wrapped up in keeping 
their money because there's all kinds of people trying to cheat them out of it. The taxes are high on it. And you start going, whoa, how, how am I going to keep this stuff? And we start spending a lot of time just trying to keep what is God's to begin with. And we really have to understand it's all God's. The time we get in trouble is when we think, it's mine, i got to hold on to it. <laughs> no, it's God. Hold it with, an, with open hands and let God do with it. If God gave it to you and you stay, you stay generous with God, he'll give you more than you can ever, ever use. We see that in somebody like George Mueller who kept giving away everything God gave him and God kept giving him back more and more so he could, deal, so he could take care of more and more orphans. Uh, we see it over and over again with some very rich people. Uh, the owner, the founder of Caterpillar, he gave God 90% and only kept 10% and was still a millionaire. Uh, Sears and Roebuck did the same thing. Uh, Cash, uh, uh, J.C. Penney did the same thing. He gave God 90% and only kept 10%. Was a millionaire because God says, "Oh, you're going to give it to me? Let me give you a lot." <laughs> Uh, and if, you know, making a million. If you if you gave, if you were a millionaire, that meant he gave away, gave away at least nine million, nine million dollars over that period of time, and probably much more than that. You know, it's an amazing thing. You know, can God do that for any of us? Yes, He could, if we will stay faithful to Him and generous to Him, and not get greedy and try to keep it ourselves. All right, this king sent his son with all these, and then King David dedicated it to the temple, to the building of the temple. And it says he dedicated all the money that he had received from Syria, Moab, Ammon, Philistines, Amalek, and the spoil of Hedazer, and the king of Robeth. So he's got six different nations it lists here that he has conquered. And instead of taking the wealth of those nations in for himself to make him rich, he has put it into the treasury for the temple. And this is an amazing thing. Solomon is going to start with quite a hoard to build the temple, and Solomon adds to it. Solomon adds to it because he gets extremely rich, and he adds to it, which is why when Solomon gets done building the temple, it's considered one of the great wonders of the ancient world. He covers it with gold. You could, they say you could see the gold temple anywhere on there because Mount Moriah was one of the higher hills and the gold reflected off of everything and you could see it from a long distance. It wasn't just a gold ceiling. He covered everything with gold. Now that's a lot of gold and it was because it was a good sized temple and floor to ceiling, gold. Uh, inside, outside, gold. <laughs> and when we get there we'll talk about just how much gold he put on it. Everything that he made inside pretty much was gold. Uh, I think it would actually be awfully hard on the eyes. <laughs> Nothing really broke it other than the uh, great big curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies. Everything else was gold. Now he chiseled, you know, chiseled patterns on the gold, but still it was pretty much unbroken gold everywhere you looked, <laughs> which would probably affect the depth perception when everything's the same color. <laughs> Uh, be a little hard to tell things apart. But uh, David is taking all of this. He's conquered all these countries. And then, just curiously in verse 13, and David got him a name or a reputation when he returned from smiting the Syrians in the salt, the Valley of Salt. The Valley of Salt is to the southwest corner of the Dead Sea. 
What the Assyrians were doing there, I don't know. Uh, and he killed 18,000 men there. So David comes back and he's killed another. And I just love this. It says, after that, you know, he's just conquered six countries, but after this battle, he gets a reputation. Maybe people are finally saying, wow, this guy is for real. Everything he does, God is blessing. And it's kind of an amazing thing. David gets a reputation. Now, David's had a reputation from the very beginning. Remember what made Saul jealous? David and he comes back from a battle, and, and, the, and the women are crying out, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. You know, what a wonderful thing for the king to hear. Uh, king, you've only so killed a thousand, but this uh, general of yours has killed ten thousand. Most kings have been jealous of generals all through history because if a general gets too much popularity, they have the army at their command and can do a military coup with no problem, and Saul is afraid of David. Doesn't understand David's heart, doesn't understand that David would never stretch out his hand against him, and is totally convinced that David is out to, out to get him. Well, he's got this reputation, he must want the kingdom next, and never understands that David is not out to get him. He throws spears at David in the palace. He, he, he uh, sets traps for David. He hunts David down. Uh, has two times at least where David could have killed him, and David kept saying, you know, look, I'm not out to kill you. God put you in my hand, and I did not take your life. And on the last one, he finally quit chasing David. When David said, I could have killed you while, while you were sleeping. And he goes, oh, okay. Uh, I guess you're, better, you're a better man than me, David. Why was he of this desire? Because in his heart, he understood that if, he was, if the tables had been turned, he would have killed David and taken the kingdom. This is what happens when people react hard against somebody. They're usually expecting somebody to do what they would do in their place. King Saul, I'm sure, would have said, I'd have gone after it. I want the kingdom so bad, I'd have taken his life if I had the opportunity. So he must be after my life. And everything was filtered through that bad thought process. And this is something that we as Christians, because we have a mind that has been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and redeemed, if we're walking with God, we see things the way he sees them. We see redemptiveness. We see uh, opportunities to give grace and mercy and believe the best in people because that's what we know that our Father wants us to do. And because he's done it to us, we start to desire to want to do it to others. And we start, the closer we walk to God, the more we start seeing, oh, this is an opportunity for me to show grace to this person. They don't deserve it, but I'm going to show grace to them. Whether it's the world and the world and flesh, <clears throat> uh, they've said bad things. You just wait till you find out what I'm going to say about them. You know, they, they're tearing me down. You just wait. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show them how to tear somebody down. Instead of, all right, God, it's yours. Vengeance is yours. I just want to show them grace. I want to show them kindness. And this is why it is so important to walk close to God, have Him renew our minds, change our thinking to be like Him, and then. People are blown away when we're nice to them. When we're actually nice to them and they've been mean to us, they consider themselves our enemy and we're not treating them like an enemy. Sometimes in the back of their mind they're going, uh, what are they, what, what, what's their game? What are, they, what are they playing? And it makes them nervous. All we're doing is being nice to them. And they, because they would never conceive of being nice to somebody that they don't like, they can't even conceive that you might. 
And this is where it comes down to, this is where we have our greatest ministry as Christians. We love people, we're kind to them, and it literally blows their mind. Because it'll take them a while, and then they see that it's real. And then they're going to wonder, how can you be this way? You know, and maybe you can remember back before you were a Christian, seeing somebody that treated you nice or treated others nice, and you're going, I don't understand that person. They're, they're weird. <laughs> you know, I don't understand why they're not getting tit for tat. You know, this person comes against them, and they're, they're being nice to them. Matter of fact, they even, they even paid for their dinner or whatever. You know, they were really being nice to them. They weren't just being nice to their face. They were being legitimately nice to them, and I, they don't understand it. They don't understand it because God is nice to us when we're walking in an enemy against him and, and walking in the world. You know, he is nice to us. He doesn't give us what we deserve, thankfully. I am glad he didn't give me what I deserved before I was a Christian. I would have never had an opportunity to be a Christian, and neither would anybody else. I don't care what age you become a Christian. If he gave you what you deserved before you became a Christian, even if you became a Christian at three or four years old, nobody would live past two or three anyway because of the sin they've done. If he gave us what we deserve. He is extremely patient. We need to learn to be patient with other people because that patience will actually win them. The song, in, in the epistles, they kept telling wives, you want to win your husband? Don't preach at them. Don't, don't be nagging at them. Just love them. Be kind to them. And they will eventually be won just by, just by that loving attitude. How do we win the lost? We love them. We love them. How did Jesus win the lost? You know, he didn't go up to the woman of Samaria and say, you sinner, get right or I'm not going to talk to you. He talked to her and encouraged her. Then after he'd established a dialogue with her, then he said, you know, go call your husband. And he goes, she goes, I, have, I don't have one. He goes, you speak correctly. In fact, you have seven. You know, and the one you're living with now isn't even your husband. And she looked at him like, oh. <laughs> okay. But he, he was not just saying, you know, he could have come up to her. He knew that she had seven husbands uh, and, a, and a man living at home that wasn't her husband. He could have come up, you sinner, get, rid, get back with your first husband and get rid of the man you're living with or I'm not, not going to talk to you, which is what the Pharisees would have done to her. But he was gentle with her. Talked about living water. Talked about, you know, how to really have a relationship with God and then talked to her about her sin and said, you really need to confess your sin and get, get right. And this is something that God does all the time. He meets us where we're at. Unfortunately, I've seen so many Christians, well, I'm not going to talk to that person until they get right. When they quit drinking, they quit being a liar all the time, you know, uh, a habitual liar. When they quit be committing adultery, then I'll go talk to them, but not until they do. Why do we want people to be good before we talk to them? Because somehow, that usually is a sign that somehow I think more highly of myself than I ought to. Somehow I think I was good when I came to Jesus. Uh, I wasn't good when we came to Jesus, and none of us were good when we came to Jesus. We had no desire to be good when we came to Jesus. It's only afterwards that we had any desire to do anything good. And that probably took a few years for many people. So we look at people and go, well, you know, God, I'd go talk to that person, but uh, nah, they're, they're nothing but a liar. So even if they did say they got saved, I wouldn't believe them anyway. No, we go in and we talk to them. Are we going to tell them their sin, their, their sin is okay? No, we're not going to tell them their sin is okay. But we're also not expecting them to get out of their sin to get saved. And 
This is very important for us. Verse 14. And he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom put he garrisons, and, and all they in Edom became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And David reigned over all Israel, and David executed judgment and justice un, unto all the people. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah was over the host, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, and Zadok was the son, the son of Ahitub, and Ahinelech, the son of Abathar, were the priest, and Siriah was the scribe, and Benaiah was the son of Jeho Jehoiada, was over both the Sherites and over the Pelites and David's sons were chief rulers. So here we see David has got victory. Everywhere he's turning, he's got victory. He's in control of this place. And then it says he put garrisons. Now note that he only put one garrison up in Syria, by what it said. It said garrison. But in Edom, he put garrisons. Why? Don't know. <laughs> uh, but apparently he expected more trouble from them <laughs> and said, I'm going to put lots of my military men here. Up in Syria, I don't need quite as many. But in Edom, he put a number of garrisons and they became David's uh, servants. And again, it says, the Lord preserved David wherever he went. God gave him victory, gave him deliverance. David is going to end up in a kingdom that is virtually at peace. When he hands it over to Solomon, Solomon gets to reign during a period of time of peace. And because David has subdued all the nations. And we look here and it says David reigned over all of Israel. And I believe here when it says all of Israel, it's meaning all of Israel. All the way from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean down toward Egypt across the, across the Jordan River. He was the one king that owned everything he was supposed to own. And David executed judgment and justice unto all the people. And I love this. David's time was a reign of justice. When people came to court, they got justice. The, the rich weren't buying their, their way out. It's hard to buy your way out when the king is rich and, and probably taking care of his judges. And he, it was a time of great greatness for Israel. Many, for a long time, people did not believe that David ever existed. They put him in the same realm as uh, King Arthur in England. Now, a great legend, no such person. Now, we're finding out there was somebody that was the basis of the Arthurian legends, but not to the level <laughs> that his legends took them to. But in David's time, by the, toward the middle to end of his reign, there was peace in the land, People weren't overly taxed, and they were getting justice from the court system. David is a great picture of what it will be like during the millennial kingdom when Jesus reigns over all the world from Israel. Justice, peace, and, and blessings. And it was a time when people spoke very highly of the king. There was nobody saying, well, we want the king gone. You know, like they were doing with Saul. People weren't happy with Saul because of the taxes and what he was taking and taking from them. In David's reign, it was like, oh, look how great it is. Yeah. In case, I'll take it to the I'll take it to court and I'm going to get justice. 
uh, you know, it's a rich guy, rich guy giving me a hard time, but I'll get, I will get justice. I will be able to present my case, and David will give a wise rule. And this is something that is very important. The scriptures tell us that a nation rejoices when the righteous rule. And this is something that we had, especially in the early part of our country, where righteousness ruled. We had a long succession of, of presidents and, and senators and assembly people that were righteous, godly people that put together good laws for the good of the country. In our day and age, we have a whole lot of unrighteous people, and we are mourning all the, all the hard, hard laws and stupid laws they put together. And like, wow, how could they come up with something so dumb and so stupid? Why are they raising my taxes to support all the stuff that I don't, don't want to see and don't want to be part of? And when the unrighteous rule, there's misery. When the righteous rule, it is a wonderful place to be. I would like to see revival. I'd like to see our country return to righteousness in the government. It would be a miracle. It would take a revival in this country as, for the whole country for that to happen. Because unfortunately in our, in our government today, there is so much unrighteousness, so much evil, so much backsliding, backstabbing and everything going on in our government. And it's only getting worse. And how bad can it be? I hate to think how bad it's going to be. But our country is going down the tubes because we have all this unrighteous. And I blame a lot of it. Blame, I blame the Christians who supposedly vote for people that are, you know, and don't even think about are they Christians? Are they righteous people? Our founding fathers said that nobody that wasn't a Christian should be running our government because they would, they would do what was after their own desires and not after what was good for the country. And they literally, in most of the state 13 colonies, they had statements in there that your oath of office included a statement of faith in Jesus Christ. All right? Our, our founding fathers didn't understand this separation of church and state that we've somehow accomplished. They did not want a state over all of the states, but they, had, they knew that every state had a, had a religion. And of the 13 colonies, all of them had a state religion except for Rhode Island. And in Rhode Island, you just had to be a Christian. That's what they wanted, a Christian. They didn't care what denomination you were. The rest of them had literal denominations that were the state's denomination. They figured that if you didn't like that particular state's denomination, you could move to another state. Uh, but if it was the United States having a religion, you would have a hard time moving out of the United States and keeping your freedom. So they didn't want the state, the, 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 the government, federal government having a state religion. But it was okay for each of the states to have their own. Their own. And, they, and that's what they understood it to be. Because they figured if you didn't like it there, you just moved to a different state where you could have a, where your religion would be more accepted. Uh, but David's time is a reign of great peace, great time of once he got it, got the battles done. <laughs> but even then, it doesn't seem like he lost a lot of men in these battles. It doesn't say that he lost thousands of men as he subdued thousands. It just talks about all of his victory after victory after victory. Uh, it was a time when people expected to go to war and win. Kind of like the United States was for a long time. When we went to war, we expected to win. We were on God's side. We expected to win because we were, we were God-fearing, honest people, and we expected that God was on our side when we went to war. I'm not sure that we can expect God to be on our side in our day and age. 
We're fighting wars that have no business being fought. We have uh, cruelty and dishonesty in our government. And I don't expect that we, we can go to war expecting to win like we used to be able to. Then he starts listing his leaders. It said, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the host. He was the general. He's been the general for a long time for David. And he's David's nephew because he's, he's the, uh, born to David's sister. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ehilud, was the recorder. He was the secretary. He recorded everything that was happening. Uh, a lot of times you will read, uh, especially when you get to Kings and Chronicles, and the rest of the acts of the king were written in the book of the yeah. kings. <laughs> okay, that's what the recorder would do. They wrote, uh, they wrote the journal, and they wrote everything that happened that day. Uh, king sat in court, heard this case, heard this case. Most of it was pretty boring stuff, but every once in a while there'd be something exciting, exciting in it. Uh, remember when uh, uh, Cyrus... Uh, Xerxes in the book of Esther was, couldn't sleep and he had them read the, read the chronicles to him. Uh, basically he said, just read me this history. I want to fall asleep and it's so boring I'll just fall asleep. And then he heard the story of Mordecai saving his life and he, then he asked, you know, uh, what happened to Mordecai? How did we reward him? And they were running down the list. Uh, there's no, no record of us ever recording Mordecai. And that's when he went out to um, have Haman, you know, Give, you know, well, Haman, what would you do if, you, if there was somebody that I wanted to honor? And Haman, of course, thinks he's talking about himself and gives this great big story. And then he goes, okay, go do everything he said to Mordecai. You know, what, a, what a humbling experience for Haman. The guy that he hates, he's building a, building a scaffolding to hang him on. All of a sudden, he's got to run him through the town with the king's second best garments on, on a second horse, with a crown saying, this is what the king will do to those he wants to honor. And then he goes home very sad. <laughs> and then he gets called to a feast after, and then loses his life two days later. Uh, so much going on. But that was what the recorder did. The recorder would write all these things, and it would be usually a very boring di diary. King got up, had breakfast with, the, with these people in, in audience, uh, went to the royal court, heard this case, heard this case, heard this case, heard this case, met with the duke of wherever, met with the, the prince of whatever, uh, went to his private chamber with his wife and left, that would be left out uh, on whatever, leave, left to imagination. Got done at such and such time, went to dinner. Uh, you know, and so pretty much boring day. Just a complete diary of everything he does all day long recorded by this individual. Pretty easy job for them. All they got to do is be a good recorder. Good, good with writing. Um, Zadok, the son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech, the son of Abathar, were the priests. So these would be the main priests. There's lots more priests other than these guys, but these are the, 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 chief, the, the priests that are in charge of everything. And then Sarai was the scribe, the head, the head of the, keeping the, basically keeping the records for whatever the priests do. Uh, and Benaiha, Benai, uh, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherites and over the Cherites and over the Peleites, and David's sons were chief rulers. I believe that these are different people groups. I didn't really dig into those. I think they were just people groups. So he's over those groups, and then it says David's sons were chief rulers. 
And that is pretty common for the prince to be put in charge of something uh, because they've got to prove that they can begin to rule. And David would be watching them. All right, are you being just? Are you making good godly decisions? Are you, do the people like you? Or are you being abusive to the people? Because the princes in those days were just like every bad story you have of the prince. They think they're, oftentimes they think they're entitled. They think they're special characters that don't need to follow the rules. So David would put all these princes in charge of different things and say, okay, which one of my sons are actually going to be a good king and who's going to be a troublemaker? Uh, you know, cause problems. And remember that Samuel, uh, Solomon's son, uh, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, one of those two, I don't remember which one, <laughs> when the when the people came to him and said, you know, our taxes are awfully high. Would you please reduce our taxes? Uh, he goes to the wise elders that helped rule with his father, and they go, it would be a really good idea. It would be a great gesture for you to lower their taxes. That way the people will love you. You can always write, you know, probably behind the doors, they go, you can always raise them if you need it, but lowering them would be a good start to your kingdom. And he doesn't really like that. He's used to living at a particular comfort zone. The idea of losing taxes is not that uh, appealing to him. So he goes and decides he's going to talk to his friends. And his friends say, you know, you tell those people, you think my father was bad? You just wait. Uh, you know, my, my little finger will be as his thigh. I basically says, I'm going to increase your taxes. You ask for them to be lowered, I'm going to increase them. And you're going to really know who's, who's boss. He really sounds like a spoiled, rotten kid. You know, you thought my father was bad. I'm going to really show you who's boss. You're going to know who's boss. And that always backfires when you act that way, to, to, be, to be a total jerk. And I've seen it over and over. You promote somebody to management, and all of a sudden they go power hungry. They were a good leader. You promoted them because they were a good leader. They could, people followed them. And all of a sudden, the power goes to their head. And it's like, well, I'm going to show you who's boss. And all of a sudden, nobody wants to work for them. And so David is talking that his children are out there, his, his sons are out there learning to be leaders. And in the process, he gets to watch them. He gets to watch and say, okay, no, you're, you're a little bit too hard on it. And he might be able to see if they're going to listen to counsel. He might take them in, well, you know, son, I was watching your decision there, and don't you think you were a little bit harsh? No, I'm the prince. I can get away with things. Okay, nope, you're not going to be the next king. You know, son, I think you were a little, oh, I'm sorry, Dad, what can I do better? Uh, it's a great way for him to watch them, get reports about how they're behaving. And that's why it's listing his royal leaders. It's given us little bits of information that are historical. All right, we're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this. Lord, teach us to be able to walk in victory and still follow you, to be able to be honor you in all of our victories and not get prideful and, and built up in our own flesh and be able to always show kindness and love to others. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.